Koppel, host of the Time for Coffee podcast, where you get firsthand career advice into the jobs and industries that interest you the most. And before we start today's show, I have a quick favor to ask you. If you haven't already, I'd be incredibly grateful if you give us a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you're like me, you need to do it now because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to be a licensed psychologist from a young professional who is definitely vibing more with Gen Z than their parents' baby boomer therapist, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology and is a certified sex therapist offering therapy to individuals, couples, and organizations alike. Dr. Jordan Soper has been working in the field of psychology since 2011 and has experience counseling patients with anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD, phobia, social anxiety, sexual health and sexual functioning disorders, as well as problems with sleeping. She also works with current and former sex workers and members of the BDSM fetish communities. In addition to treating patients, Dr. Soper is an active author, TikTok and Instagram creator whose videos cover the best flavors of lube, the best sex shops, and how to have better sex with or without a partner. Dr. Soper, Jordan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated out there in Vegas and ready to go? Good morning, Andrea. I am trying. I am strangely not a coffee drinker. After all of these years, I am a rock star, punched, sugar-free person. I love the smell of coffee. I wish I could do it, but I do love me some energy drinks, at least as much as possible. But good morning. Good morning. It's early there. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate (laughs) you getting up and in the city that never sleeps, right? That's Vegas. A little bit. I like my sleep. I like me some nighttime time. But I am so happy to be here and to talk about some of these awesome topics, which I just adore very, very much. You have to rein me in even as the (laughs) the caffeine kicks in. (laughs) All right. Well, before we get into the awesomeness of what you do in your practice at the Center for Sexual Health and Wellness, I just want you to know that I personally, well, first of all, I'm the mother of a 19-year-old cisgender male. I love your beautiful sex positive energy and messages on social media and your work to normalize open and healthy discussions about sex in this super puritanical, dare I say, sexually repressed culture. Thank you so much. Even I imagine you as a mama of a 19 year old person of how do I talk to my little one. They'll always be little ones to us. But like, how do we talk about 
sexual functioning? What language do we use? And that's something that I feel very passionate about, and particularly in my generation, generation above us, below us, really looking at how do we normalize conversations about sexual functioning and sexual identity without also sexualizing it, which I do notice that's kind of a thing that people are like, oh, the majority of their sex education comes from porn. We don't have comprehensive sex education here in the U.S., except in Washington state, which during this most recent legislative cycle actually passed comprehensive sex education beginning in elementary school all the way through seniors. So I am super duper excited to see how that's going to have a positive influence. Unless you live in the state of Washington, the only sex education you have is likely porn. And even that we're going to put quotes over sex education. Yes. And I'm going to want to ask you about that in a Mm -hmm. little bit. I want our Java junkies to know, Jordan, that one of my amazing Time for Coffee 2023 summer interns, Gabriella Feinberg, found you and pitched you to me as a potential guest because of your active presence on social. So I want to give a big shout out to Gabriella. Thank you, Gabriella. I appreciate it. <laughs> me too. How long ago did you start putting out your fun and delightfully flirty posts on IG and TikTok? Probably. A year and a half ago, maybe I am of the fun generation that half of my generation had no Internet, no technology. I'm in my mid 30s. And then the other half was all just Internet. So I'm still a little bit of a dinosaur when it comes to tech. For me, it was something that I ask my patients to do a lot, which is to do things that make them anxious, that they are afraid of that maybe they don't have as much experience with. And I'm a very big advocate of if I'm going to ask my patients to do something, I better do something. Actually, social media makes me quite anxious historically, speaking in public, posting, being pretty vulnerable. So I take a very what's called an exposure modeling approach, which is let's slowly approach the things that make you anxious with the goal of reduction of your anxiety. And what do you know, this is significantly easier now for me to do. and really using social media as a platform to educate our population, even just to have fun and talk about these topics in a way that we don't really talk about as a culture. I've been doing Instagram, TikTok. I'm starting a YouTube series. I'm just really having fun with it, despite how very anxiety inducing it was in the beginning. If you go back to my early post, you can see soper anxiety. I'm dripping, (laughs) dripping in social anxiety in those early posts. (laughs) Well, actually, speaking of dripping, I know you attend conferences and it is not just the subject matter of what you post, but sometimes it's how you show up Mm -hmm. in posts. And in one post I saw, you're standing in a swimming pool Mm -hmm. in a sexy string bikini and you go on to demonstrate how to heighten the pleasure for Mm -hmm. a male partner just before he climaxes. And then I think you had like one of those. Oh, the, the, the fun, uh, the plastic. So have you ever been for the penis, plastic penis cups? Yes. Yes. (laughs) And you demonstrated or actually just sort of showed like what looked like semen on the Mm -hmm. top of the penis shaped bottle. With Mentos. (laughs) With Mentos. And you licked the top of it. And I just have to think, what has been the reaction 
among your peers, Dr. Soper? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. I would say when we kind of talk about posts and like social media, there's always going to be a certain degree of clickbait. And that's something to kind of be mindful of with that. That was just a moment of, hey, I recognize that this is a item that is involved with it. And as someone who is not a sex worker, I do not do that work. I am in the industry to work with those individuals. How do we explain phallic objects? How do we explain vulvas? How do we explain penises without literally whipping one out? And that's where kind of having different colors ones like the the bottle is very purple. To be able to really replicate that in a way that adds a comical factor so it reduces some of the anxiety about the topic without poking fun at it. And that's kind of what I like to do with that combination. I don't want sex education to be so stifled, but I also don't want it to be more sexualized. So I like that combination of humor with it as well. And I would say the majority of my peers who I know and I have good relationships with, they're like... There you go. It was also 4th of July and it was 112 degrees out in Las Vegas. I'm like, it's warm out. I have to say, I thought it was tastefully done. I liked the fact that it was playful, but it's also normalizing it. Mm -hmm. It it wasn't a sex act as much as it was having fun. Yes. And I am a very huge advocate. And thank you for how you're phrasing that. I believe that the F in fucking means fun. Everything when it comes to sexual functioning, when it comes to having intimate relationships, the core fundamental for me is please have fun. Please enjoy this. And yes, for some individuals, there's lots of pressure, whether it's for procreation, whether you're recovering from a proactive sexual violence, whether it's there's pain involved due to penetrative pain disorders? Are you just uncomfortable with your body? Being able to move forward and grow in a sexual development and having fun with it reduces not only anxiety, it increases the fun and the enjoyment of the experience. And we, in the wise words of Stephanie Bueller, we are sexual creatures from birth to death. This is a part of our humanity. It's equivalent to eating, sleeping, and drinking. I would say amen to that. I'm also wondering, in terms of your own practice, how have your patients reacted? And is there any concern on your part about being flirty? And honestly, Mm -hmm. the opposite of that stuffy doctor (laughs) in a white coat. And certainly not like any of the female psychologists who I've ever seen as a patient acted. And I kind of wish they had. I love that question. I, I believe when, especially in the therapy room, we're all human first, human above all. So really looking at our humanization of the experience. And one of my things that I'm such a huge, huge passion advocate about is everything my patients say stays in the room. I never talk about patients ever, whether that's in conferences, maybe de-identify some information they've already consented to it. But everything you see on social media is about me, not my patients. No information about patients goes on social media. This is more just educational material, mostly more about me as the clinician. And I really think a lot of my patients appreciate knowing that even if They may relate to some of the material in what I post. 
It's never about them. Another reason that I think social media influence can be very helpful is it's it's able to get a very wide range of persons. The American Psychological Association, the APA, actually has social media guidelines based on what we as clinicians can and cannot say, what the recommendations are. I'm a huge advocate of evidence-based material and really being able to debunk some of these things that we do see on social media, which... If you've ever been on TikTok and explored the like psychology, mental health section, is there so much misinformation on there? We got a ways to go about undoing some of that unhelpful material. Oh my gosh. So take us into your practice, Jordan. Walk us through a bit more about how you came to choose these mm-hmm. specific areas of focus. Let's go reverse engineer. I'll start with what I do. So I have a private practice here in Las Vegas, which means it's a solo practice. So it's myself. And then I do have an advanced doctoral psychology trainee with me through the university. So I actually am a supervisor for her as well. And they do wonderful work in the community. But for the most part, it's me. I work clinically. When I say clinically, that means I'm working with patients. My love has always been face-to-face working with patients. I'm not an academic. I've never been trained that way. I am always been a clinician. I really adore working with patients. So I work Monday through Thursday in my private practice as a clinician. And what that means is I spend the majority of my days with patients in The individual therapy appointments, I predominantly do a lot of individual work, a little less couples and groups. Now, as I've gotten older in my career, I do a lot of individual what is called evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy or CDT. I'm going to throw a lot of acronyms, so I'll do my best to explain it. But essentially, CBT is an overarching form of psychotherapy, which says if we can identify a person's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and engage in any type of modification to those patterns, we actually end up reducing their level of distress. I am pretty strictly trained in evidence-based treatments for OCD, something like exposure and response prevention. My My first love and my first passion is actually PTSD and trauma because I was in the VA system for so long during my initial training quite a bit of trauma recovery work with patients who have PTSD and trauma history. I adore working with patients who have generalized anxiety disorder as someone who used to have GAD. That is a huge passion area for myself as well. So the majority of my work is individual therapy appointments with patients focusing on modification of unhelpful anxious behaviors, simultaneously working with individuals, talking about sex ed, in what way does their OCD maybe impact their ability to get an erection or become lubricated? Majority of what I do during a day is asking people about anxiety and then asking about their genitals and their sexual functioning is kind of how I phrase my days. I would do nothing else. It is one of my favorite things in the whole wide world to talk about all day. Where did that interest begin? You mentioned that you used to have generalized Mm -hmm. anxiety disorder. Where would you say, how did those interests evolve and Mm -hmm. develop? I describe myself as a bit of a combination of Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation, Dr. Ruth, and Morticia Adams is kind of the best combo. 
I remember watching TNG very little. I grew up in a very nerdy household, so sci-fi forever. And I remember watching TNG as a little girl and being like, I want to be ship's counselor when I grow up. I want to be Deanna Troy. But I remember also being little and sneaking down and putting the volume on the TV really low and watching Dr. Ruth. I was probably six. If you don't know the amazing Dr. Ruth, please look her up. She is one of the most amazing, sensational human creatures that has ever existed. One of the pioneers in sex education in a public setting. Follow her her Twitter. Also, she is hysterical. It just kind of came to that, but probably where it really started, I just loved the field. I always just wanted to talk. I always wanted to go into some kind of version of healthcare. I was originally went to UNLV. That's here in Nevada. I went to UNLV as a nursing major because I wanted to be an obstetric nurse. And then I think it was probably the summer between my senior year of high school and beginning college where I went. I love babies. I've always adored babies. Not a huge fan of children, but I do love babies. And I had a random intrusive thought going, if I become an obstetric nurse, I'm going to eventually have to hand a mother her dead baby. I don't want to do that. I would rather work with her after that process. And I think that's kind of where that shifted. Now, again, I'm 18 and I had that thought. I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. So I immediately shifted into psychology. And at that point, it just took off like a rocket. Could you talk about what a typical day for you, I guess, Monday through Thursday looks like in your practice? And I understand, obviously, you have to be discreet because Mm -hmm. of doctor patient confidentiality. But what does a typical day look like? Are all of your patients in person? Are you Mm -hmm. treating patients virtually? I know that that's something that you offer. I typically will see patients 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. So I'm usually up around 8. I would say now probably about 50% of my cases are virtual and 50% are in person. I'm licensed in Nevada and Washington State. I did my residency in Washington, so that's where I got my first license. So I just keep that. As well as I have what is called my ASPPB number, which is called a mobility number. As part of ASPPB, which is allowing us to do virtual treatment to a number of different states, but the majority are in Nevada and Washington for the most part, just because that's about my course load can handle. So for the patients that I see virtually, I send them links in the morning, getting them ready. And then for in-person, I just come grab them in my office. The majority of my kind of day, I usually actually begin most of my day once I've eaten and caffeinated myself, is that's usually when I film some kind of TikTok, or I will post a meme. I'm a big fan of meme Mondays. My partner actually makes most of my memes because he just loves them. He's got a graphic design background, so he makes him very pleased. I try to block in my schedule. My schedule is very structured, I would say. I do in the morning, I do some kind of social media, I do some kind of TikTok filming, whether I post it or edit it. And then I immediately start seeing patients about 10 a.m., working with them individually, focused on any of their anxiety concerns, doing cognitive behavioral therapy with those patients or doing more sexual health oriented individual therapy. And then throughout the day, depends on which day, but I do have the advanced doctoral trainee who is with me. So I will do supervision on the fly with her. If she's got questions about her cases, I'll listen to her audio recordings or I'll be doing admin 
that's the thing they don't tell you about being a psychologist of how much admin work there really is. How much is there? Oh, so much. Templates are everyone's friend, but I really enjoy it. I can type pretty quickly. That is a skill to have if you are going into the clinical world because you'll be doing notes a lot. You've got to keep notes. Is that for insurance purposes to Um, and also maybe for yourself? Yeah, it's it's for treatment planning. So when we're talking about being able to identify that you've seen a patient, I don't take insurance. So luckily, I'm only answering to the patient. So that's just continuity of care for the patient. I had a supervisor when I was on internship go, you have to put enough in a note because if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, you need to have someone be able to read your notes enough to take over. I'm like, I like that analogy. Thank you, sir. And then throughout the day, I'll just answer emails if I can prep for presentations. I love talking about these kinds of topics. And then there'll be some editing occasionally in there. I'll be watching some YouTube videos. I do love me some Sophia Nygar and some Try Guys. So that's kind of what I do. My partner recently got me into some financial planning individual, which as much as we don't talk about sex in the U.S., we do as heck don't talk about finances in the U.S., so I'm kind of nerding out a little bit with that. Or I'm looking up random cosplays or D&D material. <laughs> That's kind um, of how I make my day. I, I don't want to just have my head in psychology land. I need to kind of take a breather every once in a while so I don't get stuck. Because sometimes it can feel really overwhelming, especially with the population that I see in the work that I do, especially the trauma work. Speaking of the population that you work with, mm-hmm. do your patients tend to skew younger Because of your specialties or maybe just because of your age, the fact that you're so young and open. It really quite does vary. I would say the average population that I see is about 20 to 45 is kind of the majority of the chunk. But my work in the VA, I did a lot of work with the geriatric population. I've done work on neuropsych units. So I have a pretty big background in working with older adults and it's, and especially sexual functioning into older age and post major medical or cancer diagnosis and recovery. That is an area that I really love, but I would say the chunk of whom I see is at that 20 to 45 ish range. I don't know how much of it's because of the social media influence or just how I present myself on my psychology directories or the fact that we do see the majority of that population experiencing higher rates of anxiety and trauma related concerns are right around that developmental age. What do you think is behind the higher rates of anxiety and the other ramifications of anxiety on this young population? There is no what we call causal relationship where a direct A caused B. We've got so many correlative factors. So such a combination of looking at the socioeconomic concerns within the population, looking at active legislation against basic human rights is a huge area of concern. So some of the bigger macro concerns, but also from a kind of micro perspective, looking at how individuals are emotionally regulating, looking at the pressures they put upon themselves to perform at certain rates. Social media even has an influence. That's why I like to put bloopers on social media of like, I still have no idea what I'm doing. To really normalize and make things real. And I think that's probably one of the bigger areas that I notice within the younger population is this perceived pressure to perform at perfection. When I would rather you go for realistic than perfection, because perfection doesn't exist. 
Thank you. So I would say that's a huge factor associated with our younger population and just an absence of where the heck do we go for this information? (laughs) Speaking of where so many go of all ages, I'm curious if there are any statistics out there around how readily available porn is, whether we're talking about live or subscription based or Pornhub, how that's affected the sex lives of teenagers and 20 somethings, Mm -hmm. let alone their parents and grandparents. Mm -hmm. And it's such a multiple faceted question because we do have statistics up on at what age do most children seek porn especially in modern we know that young boys on average are going to seek actively seek out porn by about eight around age 10 which from a child developmental standpoint does make sense because there there's more curiosity It's the concern that we run into is that there's really an absence of education of our, I call them little ones, our our young ones, our teenagers and our early adults of what you see in pornographic material is, for lack of a better term, it is an illusion. It is entertainment. It is not real. I, I use the analogy of porn is to sex what full metal jacket is to war. It's got some very similar mechanisms to them, but they are different things. So being able to differentiate what sex and porn is, is something that I think we don't talk about, but that would be a huge, huge help. Especially if you've got a young kiddo who's, you know, 13, 14, 15, seeking out porn privately, or like, how do the the parents explain porn to their kids? What if they catch them masturbating? And that's kind of where I love working with parents to explain, here's how you talk about sex with your kid. I know this is really, really scary. Ask them about their sexual functioning, you know, provision of condoms, provision of dental dams, lubrication. And it's really being able to take a very developmentally appropriate approach to sex education, because you're not going to explain sex ed the same way you do a 13-year-old to you do a 19 or 20-year-old. They should be developmentally very different given the developmental process of those people. Porn does not do that. Porn is an entertainment factor. There is often not a disclaimer of, by the way, everyone in here has consented. Here is a copy of the paperwork. Let's have a conversation about how much this was filmed and how many breaks they took, how many angles, how much stretching, what is definitely water or urine versus what actually is other fluids. Like there's not a lot of sex ed because a lot of people don't also know too. From a pleasure standpoint, Mm -hmm. what is actually pleasurable to the people who are participating in this? Some of your recent articles that you've written include topics like dead vagina syndrome. Mm -hmm. Do vibrators cause a loss of sensitivity. And one of the questions that I've heard women talk about is the inability to masturbate and climax without a vibrator. Do you have any tips, Jordan, for how to get Mm -hmm. around that? For some individuals, it's really looking at what is called a paired association. So a paired association is when we connect two items to each other. So in this case, it's going to be vibrator and orgasm. 
where for a lot of individuals, if they've only ever had an orgasm via a vibrator, we're going to start developing a paired connection that that's the only way that I can have an orgasm. And simultaneously, even thinking a little bit about, well, what makes a sexual experience pleasurable? Is it just the orgasm? And that is where I'm going to quote one of my, my favorite people in the whole wide world is Dr. Ruth, where when it comes to sex, the most important six inches are the ones between your ears. Your brain is your biggest sex organ. So yes, your genitals are going to respond very much to vibration. They're also going to respond to your fingers. They're going to respond to tongues. They're going to respond to different stimuli. But how is your brain? Are you distracted? Are you focusing on, I just need to come, I just need to come, I just need to come? Yeah, you're not going to do that. Your, your brain has to be involved. And that's kind of where sex toys are and vibrators are super useful at focusing on arousal only. That's the biological mechanism of, of arousal, lubrication, orgasmic response versus how's your brain doing? And that is where I, as a sex therapist, come in and we talk a little bit about well, what's going through your brain during masturbation or during partnered sex? Are you thinking about the list of nine other things you have to do after this encounter? Are you thinking about how you feel broken because your body doesn't look like a porn star? Are you thinking about how painful it is because you experience genital pain? Are you worrying that your partner is going to judge your body? Do you worry that your penis isn't big enough? Like there's so many variations and that's where anxiety and sexual functioning is kind of my favorite thing to talk about. We're all very anxious, especially for something as intimate as sexual functioning with self and others. I personally have a very sad confession to make to you and our listeners. No doubt this was due to my upbringing. I went to an all girls Catholic school, Jordan. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there was no internet mm -mm. when I was growing up. I was raised with the belief that if you excited a partner mm -hmm. to the degree that he became excited, it was a sin. Definitely something you have talked about on your social posts about religious shame mm -hmm. around sex. And then unfortunately, the partners, the sex partners that I've had, including my husband, who I'm no longer with, didn't know much more than I did about the mm -hmm. best way for a woman to orgasm is not what is portrayed in porn. Not at all. It's not really through penetration, but rather through oral sex. I didn't come to this realization and no pun intended until I was, you know, really just even a handful of years ago. Where can our young listeners go to get the down low on how they can lovingly inform their partners how to perform great oral sex. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for being vulnerable with me and the listeners today. That is something that is so exactly just talking about these things makes it more human, makes it really normal because that is a very common experience for many individuals. And in addition to my social media, the book that I recommend wholeheartedly is She Comes First by Ian Kerner. If you have a vagina, like vaginas, want to interact with vaginas, please, please pick up Ian's book about how vaginas work. And it's an oral sex guide. 
it talks a lot about the difference between penetrative sex versus clitoral oriented sex and different types of touch. And he's got diagrams and Ian is one of my favorite human creatures that ever existed. He talks so very well about that. I have gifted that book to many a males in my life. You know, this is something, again, that I have only discovered in recent years. And I think it's also around women not really being raised to love their mm-hmm. pussy the way mm-hmm. that men are taught to worship their penis. Mm-hmm. And the women's pussy is mm-hmm. like Disneyland. Mm-hmm. There are so many amazing rides and adventures to go on. Mm-hmm. Precisely. And, and and so much about that body confidence and simultaneously the normalization of body. And this is where porn can be super helpful, especially kind of more modern porn. I, I describe myself as what I would call porn neutral, where porn has both positive and negative qualities in it. So I tend to take a, a porn neutral stance. Porn can be super beneficial for showing diverse bodies, showing different labias, showing different sizes of penises, and being able to really normalize what a body looks like. Majority of people never looked at their bodies in that sense. And it's that recognition of every body is very different. Every body is very beautiful and unique. And how do we reduce the shame and oftentimes the disgust associated with our own bodies in such a way that humanizes the genitals as well as humanizing the sexual part of the brain, which is basically the entire lobe and highlighting the major, major, major sex myths that exist out there. Such as if you masturbate, you're going to grow hair on your hands or you're going to go blind or that there's a I'm going to do air quotes. I know you can't see them, but air quotes of there's a mature orgasm versus an immature orgasm. Thanks, Freud. So many, many myths or the idea of bigger is better. The average vaginal canal is about four inches in depth. The average penis is four to six inches fully erect with the average being 5.5. When we send this message, and we do see this a bit in porn, of bigger dicks, women want bigger penises. No, you can hit the cervix if you go more than four inches, sir. Bigger is not better. We don't talk about that because in the porn world, what looks best on camera? Bigger schlong. A bigger dick looks bigger, better on camera. What looks better on camera from a visual standpoint, fully shaved, full or fully waxed or perhaps uh, different angles. Ain't nobody can get in those angles without some major stretching involved. Sure. So being what about the G spot? The G spot is basically an extension of the clitoris. The clitoris is not just the little nubby. The clitoris is actually a wishbone shaped organ that goes oh the way through the outer layer kind of behind the outer layer of the vaginal canal it is so very very cool and that's the g-spot is essentially the underside of the clitoris that is reached internally it is so very very cool because the majority of clitoral based sensations in the vaginal canal first two inches the deeper you go the less nerve endings there are and then you hit the cervix and ain't nobody got time for that Right. But the G spot isn't a spot. It's basically it's the entire area, unders. the yes, entire under area, which mm-hmm. again, who was the guy that came up with that description? Mm-hmm. He really well, he, I he think named caused a lot himself. of people. 
Of course. Of the course, course that it was a man. The German, the, the <laughs> well, it's also one of the reasons it was a man is in a lot of areas, women were not allowed to go to school or you're getting into like major systemic issues that have been going on for a long time, didn't have access to material. It's one of the reasons that there is a theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman because the person who engaged in those actions knew so very, very, very much about female anatomy. Oh, and at that, that time, that was actually very rare. I don't read a lot about horror or conspiracy theory. I can't do horror as much as I used to when I was younger anymore because of the work that I do. But I'm like, ah, that one I'll believe. Jordan, before we flash back to mm-hmm. when you were in college, are there any lesser known or maybe surprising factors out there that are affecting the mental wellness of today's college students and young professionals outside of things like wanting to do well in school, figuring out what career to pursue when they graduate, of course, finding a good job that's going to help them pay off the Mm -hmm. college expenses that they accrued? It's such a good, good question. I would say there's probably quite a combination. The biggest factor that I actually have noticed with my our college age persons is this idea that they're not doing enough, that this idea of that overperformative pattern that they're like, I'm not doing enough. I'm working all these hours. I'm going to class. I'm doing all these things. It's never enough. And then I just start singing never enough from the greatest showman in my head. But that's kind of what we do notice is that there's this huge, huge perception of need to do more, need to do more, need to do more. But it's so vague of more versus what are the specific identified behaviors that you're working towards and why? So having a bit of that combination of really asking yourself, why specifically are you doing what you're doing? And what are the specific goals that you're doing those actions try to try to get to? And why would you be doing that? You've already foreshadowed your time in university. Mm -hmm. You went to the University of Las Vegas. You thought you wanted to be a nurse. You went on to get a B.A., in psychology, magna cum laude, with mm-hmm. a minor in marriage and family therapy. Mm-hmm. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated, Jordan? I definitely did because in the psychology realm, in order to do clinical work, so that's actually independently working with patients, you need at least a master's. That was just, that's how our field works. That's how the training works. So I knew I was going to have to go to some type of grad program. I don't come from a family that comes from education. Like I'm first generation. So during my time um, in at UNLV in undergrad, I worked in two different psychology labs. I knew I had to go to graduate school. So I knew I had to at least get some type of clinical experience. So I was a research assistant for two years, predominantly working with kiddos. My plan was initially to work with children who had been bullied in adolescence because I was bullied mercilessly my entire life. So I wanted to work with kiddos. And then I started working with kiddos during undergrad being like, nope, that's one way to learn. So then I shifted gears when I started, when I entered graduate school into adult work, but I spent about six or seven months going through the whole like graduate school application process and the GREs and all of that. But I got my undergrad actually in three years. I took 
22 credits a semester and 15 credits a summer plus two labs. But I, my parents were wonderful. They took on so much credit card debt to put me through school. They paid for my undergrad. I'm very eternally grateful. And that's why when I went to graduate school, I said, you will never pay for this. I will take out loans. You will never pay for this. So that really did help me kind of advance a little bit more. So I graduated UNLV in May of 2010, and I began grad school in August of 2010. I had no break. Wow. And you got your master's in Mm -hmm. clinical psychology from the University of Indianapolis and eventually a PhD. I have what's called a PsyD, actually. So the PsyD, there are two doctoral level psychology programs. So you have either a PhD, so that's a doctor of philosophy in psychology, or you have what I have, which is called a doctor in psychology. It's more of a clinical degree. So the way I like to frame it, if you're looking to kind of go more academics, you're really interested in doing tenure, academic work, PhDs are for you. If you want to be a clinician and you want to work with patients, please look at the PsyD program. I think that's a really, really huge advancement in our field over the last 40 years to have a more clinically oriented degree. I loved the program I went to. I got phenomenal training. I got my master's along the way. So I immediately entered the doctoral program. So I got my master's along the way. Some people will do what is called a terminal master's where they will enter a master's degree. That's two years, get a master's, then enter a doctoral program. I knew I wanted a doctorate. So I was like, fuck it. Way to go. You are a glutton for punishment. My grad program was what's called a four plus one. So I did four years of doctoral training and then a final year of internship. During that time, I did my dissertation. I took comps. I had practica experiences. There's a reason my GAD went clinical in graduate school, gained 90 pounds in grad school, And then I went off on internship for a year and then I went and did a PTSD focused residency my final final year after I got the doctorate, finished that sucker up and I went into a PTSD specific postdoc. Undergrad to completion of residency was nine years for me. And then I immediately once I finished my residency, I immediately went to my first like my first real job. And that was in the VA. That was in the VA. I moved back to Las Vegas because I wanted to be home. I also hate the snow. So, Jordan, you mentioned, I just want to quickly go back to when you were an undergrad and you said you mm-hmm. had a, you did a couple of psychology labs. Mm-hmm. Was that required for your degree? And would you recommend that students who are thinking about maybe wanting to become a clinician or whatever aspect of psychology really gets them excited that they do some internships to try to figure that out? Oh, 100%. So at the undergraduate level, you have what are called research assistantship, where you're basically an assistant or you're kind of in that role. I did two labs. So I was a lab assistant at a facility that worked with children who were removed from their home due to abuse and neglect purposes. So I did assessment work with them and like data entry with them. And then I also spent some time at a organization that was looking at child development, parent relationships. Oftentimes, if you're interested in going into a master's or a doctoral program, having some degree of research or some degree of undergrad extra training is pretty much expected of you, dependent upon what 
access you have at your universities, whether that's volunteer work, my art, mine was a research assistantship. It will make your life a little easier. Go and make you look like a more of a competitive candidate for a doctoral or a master's degree. It's not required for the undergrad degree, but it just does kind of help bump up your resume and your CV in order to go for that next process. I would also imagine that it could help you in terms of process of elimination. Mm-hmm. What area of focus you might want to have in your master's program and beyond. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And one of the biggest things when it comes to learning what your specializations are, yeah, you're going to get some experience in general, especially in psychology. We recommend it. I've done a lot of work with kiddos. I've done a lot of work with neuropsych assessment. I don't do that in my day-to-day life, but I have at least a general experience. That's why I get my trainees to get experience with couples so that they can learn whether or not they want to work with couples. Great advice. Three final questions I try mm-hmm. to ask all T4C guests, Jordan. And the first one is about whether you've experienced what some people might call serendipity or good luck. It's what I prefer to call magic, whether mm-hmm. it's fairy dust magic or black magic in the way that your professional life has unfolded. It could be or it could have been through like an unexpected meetup, encounter, or event that happened one or more times in your young life. Something that actually prompted a little bit for me to change my social media stance a little bit was here in Las Vegas, we had the October 1st shooting in 2017. And I was on the state psychological association at that time. And after the the tragedy that happened, they needed someone to be on the news and talk about it on behalf of the organization and no one else really volunteered. So I said, okay, I'll do it. Cause I was part of the board. I was part of the organization at the time. And I was so nervous and you can easily Google this. You can see my, Oh, you can see my, my nerves. That was my first time ever on television. And I was so nervous and I was so anxious and I wanted to talk. I couldn't really concentrate. So I think as difficult as that was to go through for a lot of individuals, Really, for me, it was such an eye-opening experience that we as a psychology profession, we don't get trained in public education. We don't get trained to be advocates. And we sure as hell don't have good examples in the media of psychologists. For me, that really bumped up and highlighted that for me of, wow, I can do this. I can really regulate my anxiety and be an advocate for this field and talk about really hard topics. Let me try to get my anxiety down so I can be a more effective conduit to talk about these things. Probably October 1st and doing all of that and just how scary that was to go through for a lot of individuals really highlighted for me why I want to talk more about it. I remember Mm -hmm. all the news reports after Mm -hmm. that horrific event. It was, Mm -hmm. I think, a trauma for many especially Mm -hmm. those, of course, in Las Vegas. It it was a very difficult thing for the city. So being able to be a part of it and to talk with the the greater community about evidence-based resources, really not trying to fear monger them. There may or may not have been someone in the general pop culture world that came and talked about it and did a lot of fear mongering. And I'm like, that's not the most helpful thing in the whole wide world. So being able to really grow from that experience, not just to regulate my own anxiety while being in that setting, but being able to look at what is the best avenue to disseminate or give this information to our general populace. 
And then for me to how do I reduce burnout over the years since that happened, having more fun talking about really difficult topics. That's where some of the fun comes in or me making an ass out of myself, trying different flavored lubes. So you don't have to. Yes. What is the best flavored lube? Currently, the best flavored lube is J.O.'s Gelato Series. My favorite one is the white chocolate raspberry gelato flavored lube. Oh, but it's just their gelato series. The other ones suck. Yeah, some of them looked absolutely disgusting. And you are very brave to take such a big gulp (laughs) of it. Yeah, like I'd be doing like the teeny, teeny, tiny ones. Mm -hmm. And I will not ask my patients to do things I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So two final questions. If you could share a time in your professional life when you failed or stumbled or just hit a big roadblock. And what's most important here, Jordan, is how you persevered and if there was a lesson that you learned in the process. I love, love this question. When I kind of was in graduate school, I've always loved working with trauma. It's always been something that's been one of my big passions. And my entire early career trajectory was in the VA system. I got major, major training with combat veterans, military sexual trauma survivors. I planned to be a VA psychologist my entire career. Like that was just, that was the game plan. I did all of my practica. I did all my internship, all my residency. And then in November of 2016, Donald Trump got elected president. And the way that the VA system works, he, the president is directly in charge of everything when it comes to the VA system in particular. And I really had to sit with myself and decide, do I want to stay in a system with a boss that's very anti-evidence-based treatments, anti-cultural competency, anti-human rights, especially with the population that I see. I was part of transgender support groups. I was part of military sexual trauma survivor groups. And these are men and women who survived major sexual trauma or combat trauma and having someone threaten to remove access to them. That was a very difficult time. And I made the the decision that I was going to leave the VA in response to that. So I set up a private practice at the time. I was trying to do everything I possibly could to still see that population that I adored so much in a private practice setting without having the oversight of an administration that really was setting very firm expectations that they were going to dismantle pretty much half of what I had spent my whole career trying to build towards. So I decided in 2016 to leave the VA. I did leave the VA in 2016. I still get to see my amazing veterans at a much, much lower reduced rate. There's limited wait time for them. And I still get to see the population that I adore and love so much without the oversight of a governing body, even though that administration is no longer in control. That was a really big, big career shift was figuring out, number one, how the fuck do you start a business? Just having to learn on the fly and just having to grow so very, very much alone at that time, really, because my parents were out of state at that time. I really had limited support. So a lot of it was just using the Internet and Skillshare and some really amazing books and me just kind of doing it a little bit on the fly. And I was pretty young. So 2016, I was what, 25, 26 ish, I think. Oh, my goodness. So what was the lesson that you think you learned in the process? With that, it was so much of looking at, for me, the authenticity of myself and my core values, 
And would that be something that I could do? And really starting to look at from a career standpoint, what are my values? What are my goals? What are my motivations for my career? And can I jump out of my my plan? My Can you pivot? And for any of you who have anxiety, pivoting from what you originally planned is very difficult to do. It was just a huge huge example of why exposure works and why really challenging your original bias, challenging your original thoughts and making behavioral change, how beneficial it really can be. Thank you so much for sharing, Jordan. Final question. If you could go back to the University of Las Vegas and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, What advice would you give yourself? In general, I think my funny answer is tell more people to go fuck themselves in response to (laughs) what you look like in your gothiness. I had so much negative messaging, even at that young of an age. I'm very into like geeky things and metal. And I actual professional answer is if I had the opportunity and the knowledge, I probably would have really made a little bit more networking would be like I did some networking when networking when I was in undergrad during the research labs. I don't think I did enough just socializing and like networking. So like going to more extracurricular events, like being a part of a different group, meeting some of your classmates or talking with advisors. I am very good now about just cold emailing people. So I wish I had done that a little bit more, especially in the professional realm. It's very six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Most of you don't know who Kevin Bacon is. Great actor. Highly recommend Kevin Bacon. Yes. The movie Footloose. (laughs) Mine's Tremors. Are you kidding me? Kevin Bacon and Tremors. But it's an idea of network. So everyone is kind of connected to each other or knows someone. Don't be afraid. Even if you are afraid to just reach out and cold email people, the professors, these professionals, I promise you we're not as scary as we seem. And if you do cold email and they shame you, well, now you know that they're a prick and never contact them again. Dr. Soper, where can our listeners find you on social media and professionally, let's say, if they wanted to book a session with you, if they're in the Vegas area or even virtually? I try to make it really easy. So all of my social media handles are Dr. Jordan Soper at pretty much all of them to make your life a little easier. My website is JNS Psychology, but all of that information is all on the socials. So if you find one, you find them all. If there are things or questions that you have about sexual functioning, anxiety, even recommendations of things to talk a little bit about, I have a series where I react to terrible sex scenes or terrible examples of relationships, which is, um, I still think my, my least favorite pop culture relationship is Harley Quinn and the Joker. So if you have other relationships you'd like me to, fictional relationships you'd like me to judge and talk about, let me know. Awesome. Jordan, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. What you're doing is so incredibly important, both in your practice and in public. And I'm just so grateful to you for making time to share your insights into psychology with us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for spending time and listening to this very fun experience. 
Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T4C. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching services for confused college students and recent grads, feel free to check out the Time for Coffee website under the coaching tab at time, the number four, coffee.org or text me at 202-236-5712. That's 202-236-5712. Oh,